Streaming from Abby Cat Recording Studio in Chicago. You are listening to Influence, a podcast where we explore what makes great music influential. episode of season two of influence my name is blake sokoloff i'm robert dean and this is actually i believe our season finale of season two so thank you guys for listening and uh for this season finale of influence like we did with our first season finale where we kind of covered damon albarn who had a really long career we wanted to cover another artist who has a very long and very storied and influential career. So for this season two finale, we're covering the iconic Stevie Wonder. Uh, so many influences of Stevie Absolutely. Wonder. Like, you know, our, our best goal here, Blake, is probably to... Keep this under three hours, not to... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Although absolutely. we will. We'll manage to do that for yeah, our no, listeners you can, out there. You can, you can go so long on so much of what Stevie's done. So we're going we're gonna to be a little concise, and we are probably going to concentrate mostly on his sort of classic era in the 70s, yeah. but we're going to be given his whole career, as we always do. Um, but So Stevie was born in kind of 1950, Actually, like, I think right on 1950, right in the beginning of the decade. He was born in Michigan. He was born in Saginaw. Pretty quickly, by the time he was like three or four, his family, at least a portion of his family, had actually migrated to Detroit, kind of the home of, obviously, Motown. And Stevie did get kind of an early start singing in the um, kind of church choirs and things like that. But Stevie's, like, first real musical obsessions were some of those early Motown artists like the Miracles Mm -hmm. and things like that. So here's just Shop Around from the 1961 High Were the Miracles, one of their kind of introductions. So here's Shop Around, one of their first hits from 1961 by the Miracles. Yeah, cool early uh, influence for Stevie Wonder there with Miracles. Absolutely. And and one of the reasons I wanted to kind of open up with, with the Miracles is when Stevie was like 9, 10, 11, he was actually kind of already starting to get into a lot of music and, and playing and everything like that. Like he was already, by the time he was like 10, playing like keyboards and harmonica and a fair amount of percussion pretty proficiently. And 
Yeah, I'm playing some shows. Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. he actually even started like just a little duo with one of his friends. I think yeah. it was, I think the duo was just called like Stevie and John or Stevie yeah. and Jack or something yeah. like that. And they would just play like street corners or whatever. And somehow in Detroit, maybe it was through some of his church singing or maybe it was just uh, something one from one of his little, little early groups. But Stevie actually ended up kind of, he found himself in the presence of a, one of the guys from the Miracles, actually. And then I think kind of ended up like doing like a little bit of an acapella mm -hmm. cover kind of right in front of this guy, like kind of singing at him one of Stevie's originals. Mm -hmm. And so this guy was pretty impressed, like, oh, wow, this kid's like 10 years old and he's already a great yeah. vocalist and, and writing songs and stuff. So he took him to Barry Gordy. And then Barry Gordy kind of saw, probably saw this young kid with come in who could be pretty easily molded and everything since he was a little, a little kid, like 10 years old and probably saw some, probably saw some, uh, some cash signs right there, right away. For sure. And, um, pretty quickly got Stevie, um, hooked up with this producer, Clarence Paul. And they began to kind of work on what Stevie would kind of be his first sound and everything like that. And yeah, I mean, they were, of, yeah, I'm sorry. They were like know. true, like collaborators, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They were actually like, they were definitely like, that guy was kind of one of Stevie's first collaborators. And they did work together through Stevie's like adolescence and into his early 20s and everything. So mm -hmm. they were working together even up to the, like the sign seal delivered years. But one of the things that they really honed in on was kind of this Ray Charles influence as well and one of the things that stevie actually first did with with clarence was actually a, a cover album mostly of ray charles songs so i'm just going to play what would i do without you from the 1958 yes indeed ray charles album here real quick but ray charles was another big early influence on stevie and honestly the the sunglasses is definitely something that he he definitely obviously stevie was born blind because he was born so a few weeks prematurely but mm -hmm. that kind of sunglasses look is definitely something he kind of caught from ray charles but here's what would i do without you from 1958 by ray charles one of again one of stevie's early influences what would i do say Yeah, Ray Charles definitely, obviously a big uh, early influencer of uh, Stevie Wonder. It's a few others definitely. that come to mind are, are people like James Brown and Jackie oh, yeah. Wilson and even Duke Ellington. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which probably inspired the Sir Duke song from yeah, years later. Certainly, I mean that that whole song is definitely like a celebration of a lot of a lot of Stevie's love of music. But um, sort of back to his early early career. Um, Stevie, after kind of recording a few albums that like never went crazy in the charts, like I think he recorded an album, actually the album that, um, has the studio version of what would become his first hit fingertips, 
um, charted. I believe that album charted like just under the Billboard Top 100. Like I think mm-hmm. it peaked at like 101. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, which yeah. is just, just <laughs> obviously just one off from getting actually on the charts. But um, Stevie sort of pretty quickly after getting into the Motown scene got pretty involved in um, the Motown kind of touring circuit. And they would kind of have like this circuit where they would send a lot of their musicians like Marvin Gaye and and people like that on this on this touring circuit and they would kind of all tour as this big Motown package so like you know Marvin Gaye and the Miracles and Little Stevie Wonder would be on this bill and so it would be four or five artists and they'd come through a, a city or whatever and they actually in 1962 played the Regal Theater in Chicago and they recorded Stevie's set and it's only like a 25 minute long set real quick but Stevie's Stevie's on great form and actually Marvin Gaye is actually in his backing band in this show as a drummer Stevie's song from this album the the 12 year old genius recorded live which is what it's called released in 1963 is his first major hit fingertips released in two parts part one and two on this live album and the the whole thing put together is about six and a half minutes long, but the song is a great R&B, just like live track. There's a bunch of great energy in the song. And obviously the the rhythm track and Stevie's playing is, is phenomenal, especially for only being 12 years old when he first recorded it. So here's Fingertips parts one and two, which actually topped the Billboard Hot 100. So this is Stevie's first number one hit song, which when the song charted, he was 13 years old, mm-hmm. which I believe That's is a actually record. still yeah. the record for youngest number one hit That's right. on the Billboard Hot 100. Like even Billie Eilish, I think, was 15 or 16 when she had some of her earliest hits. So it's still something to this day that that holds. So here's Fingertips Part 1 and 2 live at the Regal Theater in Chicago from the 12-year-old genius recorded live in 1963. Yeah, in this uh, early uh, touring period, um, from what I recall, the uh, Motown CEO, Barry Gordy, who you already referred to, basically, he, you know, he got um, uh, little Stevie Wonder in those days, oh, yeah. uh, a tutor to yep. go on the road with, and yep. he paid him $2.50 a week. Yeah, so, I uh, think like about 25 bucks. Yeah, about 25 money. bucks, yeah. Yeah, similar to the early deal that he had with, with Marvin Gaye from yeah. our last podcast, but... It was definitely like a it was definitely where Stevie kind of got his his um first kind of taste of what it was really like in the music industry. And then unfortunately for a couple years after Fingertips, he sort of floundered around and even was running into some issues where he thought he might actually get hot, get fired from Motown or dropped yes. because his his voice was starting to yeah. drop as he got into puberty and everything like that. But then him and Clarence got together and Clarence was actually kind of happy with his voice maturing a little bit. It meant they could, they could kind of write a little bit more 
adventurous music, so they kind of wanted to write a song specifically for Stevie's new voice and get it out as a hit. And that's actually how they wrote the the song Uptight, which would be kind of become one of Stevie's first real modern hits. And this is actually also the first hit of his that he has a co-writing credit on because the uh, songwriters actually wrote the lyrics and the, the, the vocal to a keyboard part that Stevie had already written. So this was Stevie's first taste of like being a co-writer on one of his big productions. So here's Uptight from the single album Uptight from 1966 from a 15 year old now Stevie Wonder. Yeah, I mean, really going from just about getting dropped from the label to jumping into uh, a hit there in the mid-60s was just a huge turnaround. Definitely. And I mean, after that sort of, um, he after he kind of turned that around, he sort of began to kind of have a little bit more creative freedom and also actually was able to kind of get into the production of some of his music a little bit because that was definitely something he wanted to get more and more into as his career evolved and as he aged and actually around 1970 1971 his record contracts with Motown were kind of entirely rewritten because when he signed as a kid they signed him on this kind of like just like kind of a very childlike childish record deal yeah. that was very basic and everything like that I, I think Stevie actually um let it expire yep and forced yeah. the issue exactly yeah. exactly exactly what he did and he also like I'm going to play after we play this song here in a in a second. He also started getting into a little bit more like co-writing and producing for other artists on Motown, like the Spinners and other and artists like that. Kind of as another mm -hmm. show of force to Barry Gordy, being like, "Look how important I am to your label. Like I'm not only am I making my own hits, but I'm giving hits to your other artists and things like that." Yeah. But yeah. but this song, "Signed, Sealed, and Delivered" from the album "Signed, Sealed, and Delivered," was the first time. He was given production uh, credits on the song as well. So this song, another it's another co-write. He's not into the just sole writing uh, credits now, but he is the sole producer on Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, I'm Yours from 1970, the album of the same name. So here is Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, one of his probably classic tracks, and this is one of his earliest songs where he was really starting to take full control mm -hmm. of his career. So here's Signed, Sealed, and Delivered from me. Yeah. 
Yeah, Stevie actually had a bunch of hits between 68 and 70, that being one of the – actually, as you said, Blake, I mean, he, the, that was the first ever self-produced song, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, obviously, that kind of set him up for that whole period of the 1970s. Absolutely. And, and like I was saying here real quick before we get too far away from this mid-period, I here I do want to play a quick snippet of the Spinner song, It's a Shame – uh, from their 1970 album, Second Time Around, released right around the same time as Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. This is Stevie Wonder co-writing and playing a number of the instruments on this song, probably about half the instruments, along with a lot of the normal uh, uh, Motown session players like James Jamerson. But here's It's a Shame by The Spinners. One of The Spinners' biggest tracks, this song has over 100 million plays on Spotify. So Steve was Stevie was even giving other artists some of their massive hits. So here's It's a Shame from Yeah, Stevie also composed the song uh, The Tears of a Clown for uh, Smokey Robinson and Miracles, and that became a number one hit for those guys. Yep, yep. so he was he was very busy in this intense period for mm-hmm. his career in the late 60s and early 70s. So he actually ended up getting very interested in this sort of short-lived early electronic art- artist or art project called mm. Tonto's Expanding Headband that was really like two or three guys that were very, very into the early work of synthesizers in the late 60s and early 70s. So here from their 1971 album, Zero Time, is a quick snippet of the song River Song by Tonto's expanding expanding headband, who would actually go on to work in the production on a number of Stevie's albums in the 70s. So here is River Song from 1971 by Tonto's expanding headband. Obviously, that's pretty far out there in ambient kind of music, but that definitely goes to show, like, Stevie was definitely looking towards the the cutting edge of the music industry at the time. Yeah. And Tonto, a couple of the uh, members of Tonto's uh, expanding headband actually would go on to work on with Stevie on production for a number of his compositions going forward into the 70s. Like, I'm going to play a song from the Music of My Mind album from 1972, Superwoman, um, which is kind of one of the bigger hits off of this album, which kind of saw, which, and this is one of the, th- the, the songs on the record that the Tonto guys are actually working with the production of as well. And you can hear, like, Stevie's beginning to expand his 
keyboard heavy sound with a lot of nice synthesizer tones and some nice sound design. So there's some very cutting edge elements that are starting to creep up in his music by 1972 or so. So here's Superwoman from Music of My Mind from 1972, kind of the first album generally considered part of his classic period, so to speak. Mary wants to be a superwoman and try to boss the bull around. But does she really think that she'll get by with a dream? A woman wants to be a superwoman and I just had to say goodbye because I can't spend all my hours Yeah, Stevie, uh, for the next, I guess, several years, really collaborated a lot with those two Tontos guys, uh, yeah. Robert Margaluth, Margalef, excuse me, and Malcolm Cecil. Um, and he also worked a lot with a lyricist named Yvonne Wright. Yep. And uh, I think those were three huge influencers and collaborators of Stevie's for just years during the 70s. Absolutely. Definitely. And and music of my mind is definitely still considered part of his um, – kind of classic period nowadays, yeah. but it was actually of those five or so albums, kind of his least successful one, like Superwoman was probably the biggest hit off of that album. And I think a lot of critics were almost like taken a little bit aback by, and at least initially some of a lot of his sound design work in that album. And they were like, oh, this is almost more of an ambient work than like an R&B kind of something like what they more expect from Stevie. So yeah. I, I don't know if Stevie took that too much to heart or if he was just like expanding on his sound anyways. But in the next album, Talking Book, kind of the the biggest, one of the biggest albums in his, kind of his classic period, mm -hmm. he really decided to go back to that R&B sound, but still keep a lot of that sound design influence from, from music of my mind, but also bring it back to a little bit more of a groovy, groovy and hard hitting place. And he had he, one of the songs on that album is the song Superstition, which we opened the podcast with. And the other song the, that was a massive single on the album is You Are the Sunshine of My Life, which I'm going to play here real quick. But both Superstition and Sunshine of My Life were number one hits on the Billboard Hot 100. And they both won Grammys at the, the Grammy Awards for, for the year that the album came out. And starting with Talking Book, every album that he released is until um, Songs in the Key of Life in a few years would win at least a couple Grammys yeah. at the Grammy Awards. So yeah. that was another big part of his massive hold on the industry during this kind of classic period. But here's You Are the Sunshine of My Life from 1972's Talking Book by Stevie Wonder. I feel like this is the Shine up my life. 
Well, I guess there's a reason they call it the classic period, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Every single it's song is a massive hit for yeah, sure. Yeah. And as Stevie kind of continued this sort of classic period, so to speak, he also got more and more confident in the studio and as a musician to the point that on Intervisions, his next album from 1973, a number of the songs only feature Stevie on every instrument on the song. So he would be playing mm -hmm. drums. He would be playing bass, a bass line on one of his synthesizers. He'd be playing a number of other keyboards and things like that. And also tambourine and, and percussion and obviously his lead vocals. So by the time he got to Intervisions, the only time there would be another musician on a Stevie Wonder song is if he wanted some additional maybe percussion or some guitar because he was never much of a guitarist mm -hmm. or some backing vocals that he couldn't do himself because he wanted some female backing vocals or something like that. So by Inner Visions, a lot of this, a lot of this music would be Stevie Wonder on nine out of the 10 instruments on a song or all of the instruments on a song. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to play Higher Ground from this album here real quick. And Higher Ground is one of the tracks that only features Stevie. So on this song, Stevie Wonder is doing his lead vocal, his Hofner clavinet, the, playing the drums, doing his bass line on his Moog, and also doing all the percussion, like tambourine and claps and everything like that. So here's Higher Ground from 1973. It really goes to show the level of confidence and proficiency that Stevie was exhibiting in the studio. So here's Higher Ground from Inner Visions. Yeah, that song, Higher Ground, number four on the pop charts. And, yep. and the album went on to get uh, give uh, Stevie three more Grammy Awards and yep. it won album of the year, right? Yep. So, yep. wow. And I mean, including one of the Grammys being album of the year, like yeah, you said. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that was another crazy big album for Stevie. And he kind of immediately went on to kind of continue his, his streak with fulfilling this first finale. Another album that won the Grammy for Record of the Year, which I believe is the only time a single artist has won Album of the Year in two consecutive years in a row. I think you're right, yeah. And it went on like he was he was kind of continually getting a little bit more uh, political as these kind of albums would go on. Like he's always been very into writing about love and relationships and things like that. But he would also start to write songs he was very critical of Richard Nixon's presidency like on inner visions there's a song called um Mistra Mistra Know It All and on this album fulfilling his first finale there's a song one of the biggest hits on the song actually is called You Haven't Done Nothing which I believe was the number one hit mm. directed specifically at Richard Nixon mm. um so here is You Haven't Done Nothing from 1974 fulfilling his first finale it just continues Stevie's incredible streak of amazing R&B and funk music. And 
again, a lot of these songs are only featuring Stevie or one or two other musicians. So here is You Haven't Done Nothing from 1974's Fulfilling This First Finale. Yeah, Stevie Wonder, 25 years old, he he won Album of the Year, 74 and 75. And yep. so uh, when Paul Simon won in 1976, he basically just got up there and thanked Stevie Wonder for not putting an album out that year. Exactly. And that was honestly the only reason Stevie didn't put an album out that year is because his next album would basically be two and a half albums right. worth of material. The the His next album, 1976's Songs in the Key of Life, would have two albums. There, it would be a double album with an additional EP tacked on to the end of the double album. So that is essentially almost almost three albums worth of material. Yeah. And that's kind of the only reason <laughs> that the rest of while. the music industry got a got a year long break from <laughs> from living under Stevie's shadow. Um, and this album really saw Stevie kind of complete. I feel like what a lot of what he wanted to kind of complete with his with his career and music and like I we talked about quick a little bit quickly earlier in the podcast the song Sir Duke which has become one of his biggest hits ever is kind of a love song to a lot of the music that Stevie Wonder was inspired by yeah. like kind of named after Duke Ellington and sure. some of that music as well but a lot of the the, the Sir Duke the song itself is kind of about music as a concept and everything mm -hmm. like that. So here's, I'm going to play just a, a, a snippet of Sir Duke from 1976's song is Songs in the Key of Life by by Stevie Wonder, but this is kind of the, the pinnacle of his career in the 70s. So here is Sir Duke, one of his biggest and probably most well-known songs from his whole career. What a what an album! Just amazing number of hits, and and that album ranks fourth on Rolling Stone's all time five hundred greatest albums of all time. Definitely, uh, definitely know. worth it for sure. Yeah. And after kind of after this period, I think Stevie One took like a few years off, just 
from recording. I mean, he had in the just a, basically a span of five years recorded six albums worth of material and kind of need and also was also touring and working on side projects and things and things like that outside of all of that during that whole period of his kind of classic album period. So he only really released one more project in the 70s, which was a soundtrack for a kind of documentary. I think it's just called Journey into the World of Plants or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, The Secret Life of Plants. Yeah, The Secret Life of Plants. Yeah. And it was a pretty experimental, like all instrumental album that he where he toured with an orchestra and, and a couple synthesizers and things like that. So he got a little bit more into just what he kind of wanted to do. And he started working on a lot of soundtrack work into the 80s. It was working on soundtracks for film directors like Francis Ford Coppola and Spike Lee. So mm -hmm. he was obviously in demand among some of probably what is considered Hollywood's best of the best in terms yeah. of directors. And so he was kind of picking and choosing whatever projects he would really wanted to be involved with. And the 80s also saw him get a lot more into just collaborating with a lot of his other artists and people that he respected. Like one of his probably most famous collaborations outside of a lot of the collaborations he did with the Jacksons was probably his Ebony and Ivory mm -hmm. standalone single with Paul McCartney released in, I believe, 1983. Mm -hmm. Um it sounds about right. 83. Yeah. yeah. So this is, I'm going to play just a quick snippet of this Ebony and Ivory by his collaboration with Paul McCartney. Obviously, this song is sort of a, a, a light hearted take on race relations and things like that. So it's a pretty light pop song, but has a decent heart to it as well. So here's Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> What we need to survive Together Yeah, cool collaboration. Definitely. And Stevie would have still occasionally release a couple albums in in the 80s and, and 90s. But like he released, I believe in 1980, the album Hotter Than July, which had mm -hmm. Master Blaster and a couple other hits on it as well. And in 1985, he released In, in Square Circle, which had this song Part-Time Lover on mm -hmm. it, which was another probably his biggest solo 80s hit and definitely saw him kind of getting into a lot of the sounds of the 80s, like the drum machines and a lot of the, he was always very into synthesizers, but a lot of the mm -hmm. very heavy synth work in the, in the mid 80s. So here from 1985 in Square Circle is the song Part-Time Lover by Stevie Wonder. <laughs>
Okay, and yet another number one hit. Yep. For Stevie Wonder. Unbelievable. And obviously you can you can hear the very 80s kind of program drums and yeah. stuff like that in that song. It was a very, very 80s kind of production, but there's definitely still that very, very funky Stevie Wonder vocal and bass line and everything like that. So it still has a lot of his, what made his music great in the 70s, but just was very updated for the times. And another kind of collaboration that actually got very big it was one of elton's biggest songs in the 80s was kind of a surprise collaboration that i actually didn't realize was stevie until i was researching for this podcast but stevie wonder actually plays some harmonica and does a tiny bit of backing vocals on elton john's song i guess that's why they call it the blues from his kind of mid 80s album too low for zero the same album that has his big 80s hit i'm still standing so this is another kind of example of Stevie getting very into the 80s sound and also kind of collaborating with a lot of the musicians that he he was a big fan of and friends with. So here is, I guess that's why they call it the blues featuring Stevie Wonder on some harmonica and backing vocals by Elton John from the mid 80s. The album Too Low for Zero. Like children, living like lovers. Cool to hear Elton there. By the way, we uh, we were able to catch his going away tour. Yeah, this... he actually played that song. It was a fantastic, fantastic set all around. Yeah, but it was very cool to hear him play that song, especially because it's not like it's not a as big of a hit as say, and I'm still standing or something like that. Right. But very cool. Yeah. And kind of one of the things that into the '90s, Stevie's music kind of was most kind of popular with was a lot of the hip hop and and rap scene that was kind of coming up in the late 80s and early 90s was big on sampling a lot of work from the mid 70s and stuff like that like a lot of that funk kind of stuff was a lot of where the sample basis for a lot of that hip-hop was coming from and one of the most iconic probably 90s hip-hop songs from uh coolio who unfortunately recently passed away is the massive hit gangsta's paradise which actually very much uh, heavily relies on a musical sample of Stevie Wonder's Pastime Paradise. So I'm going to play just a quick snippet of Pastime Paradise for you guys and then go right into Gangster's Paradise so you can hear the sample at work. But it's a very, very obvious sample once you hear it. But it, mm -hmm. it really improves both that, that Gangster's Paradise song and it really contextualizes Stevie's track in a cool, very modern for the, for the decade of the 90s way. So here's Pastime Paradise and then very quickly led into Gangster's Paradise by Coolio.
And here's Gangs of Paradise by Coolio featuring LV. And obviously the the whole chorus vocal of this song is kind of interpolated from Pastime Paradise as well as taking a pretty direct sample of the actual instrumental background. So here's Gangs of Paradise by Coolio and LV from 1995. Great example of uh, Stevie's influence on some of the largest musical acts of, of really all time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that song, Gangsta's Paradise, has over a billion streams <laughs> on Spotify, which wow. is pretty crazy. So it actually has m- more streams than any one, single one of Stevie's songs. So yeah. definitely just goes to show the the level of influence that he's had across kind of the musical spectrum. Absolutely. And another kind of one of the artist, a more modern artist that takes a lot of influence from from Stevie Wonder is kind of one of my favorite modern R&B artists and vocalists and and even actors as well. But Janelle Monet talks a lot about taking a lot of the vibe and a lot of the kind of energy that Stevie would have where a lot of Stevie's music is so groovy and great to play at any party, but like a lot of the songs have great messages about what it's like being a black American and even just like political messaging as well. And Janelle Monae's music is very much like what is was it, what it's like living in a modern day uh, America as a, as a black woman and, and everything like that. So she takes a lot of artistic and and musical cues from Stevie. So I'm going to just play a quick snippet of one of her biggest hits off of her most recent album, 2018's Dirty Computer. This is Make Me Feel by Janelle Monet. And this song actually features Prince on some backing instrumentation recorded before he passed away as well. But Janelle Monet is another massive example of where Stevie's influence can be heard in a more modern day sound. And you can also actually catch Janelle Monet right now in um, Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out, which is we actually just caught a couple just came days out. ago yeah. in theaters. It was fantastic. I think it's going to be on Netflix soon. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's great. Janelle kind of plays one of the leads in the film. So she's a fantastic actor as well as no musician. Question. So definitely yeah. one of the, the cooler kind of double threats in pop <laughs> music today. Uh, but here's Make Me Feel by Janelle Monet off a of dirty computer where you can really hear that Stevie Wonder influence. So... So here it is, Make Me Feel by Janelle Monet. It's like I'm powerful with a little bit of tender and emotional sexual bender. Mess me up, yeah, but no one does it better. There's nothing better. That's just the way 
Thanks for sneaking that one in, Blake. A really, Definitely. really good uh, example of uh, of the influence. Absolutely, and I mean it's a it's a great song as well. Yep. And um, so that kind of takes us up to the more modern day era of Stevie's career. He's uh, he has released one or two albums in the in the two thousands, kind of mostly some standalone singles here and there. But then there was a an album in 2005, I believe, that did actually also, speaking of Prince, feature Prince on guitar on one or two songs. So he's he's kind of just making music on his own kind of rate and his own pace nowadays. I think he's proved everything he really feels like he yeah. needs to prove musically, yeah. which is very fair given the amazing career that he has had. Probably one of the best musicians of all time, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, but Stevie actually did put out a few songs in the uh kind of over the pandemic in 2020 one of which is where is our love song featuring gary clark jr kind of a a fantastic blues blues and r&b guitarist who has kind of come out over the last decade or so so it's cool to see stevie kind of still working with some Mm. more modern artists some artists you know under the age of 40 or so right um but where is our love song is a fantastic newish track from stevie and honestly, one of the ha- he's had one of the best careers in in the music industry, and obviously is one of the most influential musicians of all time. So definitely felt great to do a season finale of influence on covering his career. So thank you guys for going going with us this season yeah. and listening to everything. We'll be back next year with some new episodes and everything. So you can also follow us on Instagram at influence.podcast. Thank you guys so much yeah. for listening. Thank I've you. been Blake Sokoloff. I'm Robert Dean. This has been season two of Influenced here. Closing out season two is Where Is Our Love Song from 2020 by Stevie Wonder and Gary Clark Jr. Thank you guys so much. Not the kind of hope that leaves on this But the kind of hope that lives up for humankind. We're all